Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Today, we'll be discussing the state of the DC power industry, how we got here, where we're going, and some of the challenges along the way. We'll also touch on what to make of the aging grid infrastructure in America and some of the ways we can prepare for the problems associated with it. And finally, we'll talk about the importance of chargers and the redundancy for standby power applications and get a firsthand account from a true product expert. So let me start by saying I'm in no way a DC power expert, but everyone else you hear on the show is definitely going to make up for my lack of knowledge. So I'm going to start with these two gentlemen who have enough knowledge for multiple lifetimes, and they will be featured in every episode with our primary segment of the show called Battery Blarney. I'm going to introduce to you to the show our product experts, our true industry experts who have been in the business for 40 plus years and not combined, but 40 plus years each. They're longtime friends and colleagues. If I'm not mistaken, I think they might even be godparents to each other's kids. And uh, I think it's safe to say they go way back. So here we go. Prepare to be entertained and enlightened by our two friends and colleagues, George Peterson and Alan Byrne. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks. All right, guys. Well, let's jump into it. George, why don't you start by giving us a little bit of a background on how you got started in this crazy business? How did I get started in this crazy business? Well, it goes back a long time. At that point, we were still living in the UK, and we got contacted by a friend and asked if we were doing installation work and asked if we'd consider going to Saudi Arabia again. We'd already been there once for something else. If we'd be interested in going to Saudi Arabia and installing the telex system, it required us to come to the US. It was supposed to be six weeks. We ended up staying three months to do a training course. And up to then, most of the work I'd ever done was all on telecommunications. Then we discovered when we got to the States that part of our job in Saudi Arabia was going to basically be installing the power system for it as well. And we had a uh, one-day course, and then we were dispatched forthwith to Saudi Arabia to install the power system. And that's how I got started in power, because the gentleman that had sold the company we were working for, the power system, ended up hiring us all and bringing us back to the States eventually. And that was how we got Alan involved. So what year was this, George? 1976. Okay. My story's pretty similar. I've known George since 1974, I believe, George. But anyway, uh, yeah. I'd worked some previously with uh, Marconi Space and Defense Systems, uh, and they had some batteries there so I could spell battery. But then when I ended up in Saudi Arabia, I saw these big uh, jars with uh, actually no electrolyte in them. I was told to go and install these. Uh, so the first problem I had was obtaining electrolyte, uh, which I had to get mixed locally in Saudi Arabia. But uh, like George, I basically got involved with batteries by default. And like George, I uh, found the subject of battery backup systems in general very, very interesting. So, like George, we basically specialized in that. I say I'm a little bit like George, so we tend to go on and on a little bit. So you're going to have to cut us short sometimes, David. In actual fact, uh, I joined a self-help group 
uh, for those that talk too much. And it's called on and on and on. Well, this is called battery blarney for a reason. So we like to hear the stories. So yeah, like I said, safe to say you guys go way back. And so fast forward to, I guess, five or six years ago, and you're still doing it. What has made you still want to do it and then get involved with Eagle Eye? You take that first, Alan, or shall I do it? Well, you got involved with Eagle Eye first, or you're going to go first. Yeah, okay. Basically, before I had officially retired from my previous employer, Alan and I actually met the founders of Eagle Eye, Ryan and Luke, at a trade show up in Long Island. And somehow we ended up closing a number of the hospitality suites that night and got to know each other quite well. Then when I finally decided to retire, my wife suggested that I found something else to do because she did not want me hanging around the house or sitting watching television. So I set up a small company to do training because it was the one thing I had enjoyed doing when I was in my previous job. And that was the point at which Ryan called me and said, would you be interested in doing some training for us because we're setting up Eagle Eye University and well, and I said, well, how many courses would you want? And he said, well, maybe four a year. Well, all I'll tell you is that in the first year, I did 12. One of those was Hawaii. One was Alaska in the winter. And the story goes on from there. Simple as that. George is correct. We sat in a couple of uh, hospitality suites and talked to uh, the principals of Eagle Eye, Ryan and Luke. And uh, I was still working at the time. I was working for Interstate Power Care. A division of interstate batteries. And I kind of liked the guys. It was reminded me of somewhere that I was about 20, 30 years previous when George and I were working for a, basically a startup company and became one of the leaders in the industry. So uh, a couple of years later, uh, after George had uh, joined the guys, I got a similar phone call and said, Alan, we want you to become our technical expert. And I said, well, I might know some stuff, but no means am I an expert, but uh, obviously the guys did think we were experts. So I joined not so much for training, but for uh, offering some guidance in power system selection and battery selection and maintenance and what have you. So I know that you guys are doing it because you want to stay active. It's something you do have an expertise in after all these years, but knowing you both, you both seem to still have a passion for this subject and for the industry. And so what is it that I guess we'll, we'll go back to you, George. What is it that keeps you motivated to more than just staying out of your wife's hair and keeping busy? What motivates you to continue down this path working in the DC power industry? Very simply because I enjoy it. I suppose the whole way through my career, there are very few of the things I have done that I haven't enjoyed doing over the years. I just feel it's an important part of living is that you spend so much of your time working it's important that you enjoy what you're doing. And there's so many opportunities. It's an industry that is, as we know, changing so much. I simply enjoy it. That's the simple answer to the question. Well, I'm pretty much the same as I enjoy it. Not so much the hands-on perspective, but uh, I enjoy working with the people in the industry. Got many friends over the years who are the true experts in the industry. And the other thing that motivates me is stupidity one word, and that's the uh, stupidity that crept into the industry with the uh, generations that came after George and I, and uh, correcting some of the problems that's out there and some of the misunderstandings. I enjoy that perspective. 
All right. Well, now we're getting into it. I like to hear that. Alan, let's hear more about kind of along those lines back to you on, on this. And what are some of these challenges over the years that you have seen that have crept into the industry? Some of the stupidity, as you've mentioned, what are some of these areas where you feel like people need to kind of take a step back or maybe learn from the past a little bit more in order to overcome these hurdles? Okay. The, the biggest thing is financial engineering, as I call it. In other words, that the systems are being purchased, specified, and with respect to how much does it cost rather than how well does it work. That's huge in the industry at the moment. And I see a lot of purchases being made by non-professionals, basically, what's the cheapest that will do the job? So uh, I'd like to hear what George thinks about it. Well, I agree with everything you said up to now, which is quite unusual in Scornications. But Yes, they, it's without a doubt it's financial engineering, but it's also this lack of knowledge, which is probably one of the things that drives me on this the training aspect of what I'm doing today. We basically lost, we've lost a couple of generations, I believe, of, of power engineers that actually understand the job. Where before the my bell was broken up, there used to be power engineers within every telephone company, and they designed it, and the sales reps went in and. Uh, sold their individual bits of equipment, and they then were given the job of putting it all together based on what the customer wanted. Unfortunately, when the bell companies were broken up, or my bell itself was broken up, a lot of those power engineers were, were laid off because they weren't seen as a profit center. So that, to me, is where it really all started. So does it come back to kind of like what Alan is saying, is it a lack of resources or is it a lack of vision to utilize resources in the right way in order to get the training that's needed in order to spend the money on what is needed to do things the right way? Is it a lack of resources or is it short-sightedness or both? To me, it's short-sightedness. I think that's probably the simple answer is that it's, it goes back to what Alan said, it's financial engineering. What is the function of this? Most people what I've realized is don't understand that without that standby power, your company is finished if it all goes dark. You can't do anything. And it was that way when we came here and ended up putting power systems in for telex systems in Saudi Arabia. That's why it was done. And uh, our dependency on communications and every aspect of communications is far more dependent today. But we still don't put the effort and money into doing it. A good example of that was about 20, 30 years ago when we were both involved with the build-out of the mobile radio systems and they were installing them all over the place. And the main thing was that the installation groups, their job was to get the cheapest possible equipment that would do the job, install it for the cheapest possible price, and then hand it over to the operations people. They didn't care about what happened after it was handed over to ops. So uh, ops were pulling their hair out and finger pointing started. So uh, that's when financial engineering first started to creep in, in my mind. And that was a typical example of it. Okay, so how have you both participated in trying to overcome this financial engineering or this short-sightedness? Obviously, George, you've taken on training. Both of you are heavily involved with organizations like BATCON. Maybe starting with you, Alan, what are some of the things that you have done and you think we can do to sort of right the ship? Well, one of the things that 
I did, and I'm probably most proud of, and I got some assistance from George here, was that I was one of the founders of BATCOM going back uh, 25 years ago. People were installing the so-called sealed maintenance-free batteries all over the place. Valve regulated lead-acid batteries to give them the correct name, but they were neither sealed or maintenance-free. And there was a lot of finger-pointing in the industry. The manufacturers were pointing fingers at the users, and the users were pointing fingers at the installers. And so uh, Glenn Albert and I got together, and some other people, and said, we need to sort this out. So let's get a forum going. And that forum turned into BATCON. And the other thing I've enjoyed doing or been instrumental in is that uh, some of the uh, modern standards, codes and standards that's promulgated by the IEEE, have a heavy involvement in that as well. And that's been interesting because you can write documents that will try and make sure that the users do things the correct way. So over to you, George. Well, I, I think I've always been training really all the way through. And when we talk about training, that training can also be in the form of published articles. Like at one point, Alan didn't mention, but he was a contributing editor on a power quality magazine and he wrote a column every month for it at one point. I published in a number of magazines, spoke at conferences. They're all part of the sort of the educational process and almost I think the most common theme all the way through was battery reliability. That's what we were talking about. That's where, like Alan, unfortunately, while I was still working, I didn't get as much time to attend any of the IEEE stuff or anything like that. But I got heavily involved with that since I retired. But that's also interesting because I went to occasional ones during my career. You know, you would have a, a perfect example this was the first thing in, on the Monday morning was everybody had to announce who they worked for and who was paying for them to be there so that you understood where some of the ideas were coming from. Today, when we have that attempt to find out who's all there pre-COVID, a larger percentage of that was people that were retired. So we're even within something like the IEEE, we are losing that level of knowledge and some of the companies are no longer supporting them. There was what one gentleman I can think of, but Alan knows very well as well. He was very actively involved in it, and his company just said, no, we're not going to support that any longer. And they're one of the major players in the power industry, in the power business. So, But they just said, no, they weren't going to support them going to the conferences or the sessions any longer. Yeah. Yeah, back in, oh, I guess it was about 1990, we were involved with an organization called Bixie, Building Industries Consulting Services International. And we presented a paper at their annual conference. And the title of the paper was, Batteries are supposed to keep you up, but they will let you down. And we got a reputation of becoming the first whistleblowers in the industry. And we had several of the battery manufacturers at that conference. And not one of them refuted anything that George and I said, which was very gratifying. So there again, we can claim to be the whistleblowers to the fact that uh, we have a problem with batteries. And thankfully, a lot of those problems have been sorted out. Great. And I know at Eagle Eye, we definitely appreciate both of your insight and expertise. And I'm here with Andrew Charlton, who is a stationary power sales manager for Eagle Eye. And I know he looks to you both quite a bit to assist with sales opportunities, working with customers and leans on you both for your knowledge. 
So maybe Andrew, if you've got any thoughts on what are some of the things that you work on that you look to George and Alan to when there's just, you need to bridge this gap of knowledge when working with the customer. Yeah, absolutely. George, I think you can speak quite well to it is what a lot of people do not understand about the DC power world is that there's a lot of engineering and the engineering goes from the load inputs, the demand on the grid, and then the support that goes in behind those. So when we're talking about a a DC battery system, what's not so evident is the complexity that's going in behind that as far as the engineering and the scale of equipment going in there. Yeah, I would agree with you, Andrew. That's, that is the part. There is a lot more engineering needs to be done. The industry went through a, still is in it in part, a period whereby they wanted to buy everything as a package deal. They basically, you put together this package and that was it. That's what the customer bought. The problem is that the packages, unless you have the huge volume for them, in part of this, it was because of the build out of the mobile industry, the cellular industry was that these were all repeat, you know, every cell site was the same. So the idea of a package that you could simply install works well. But as Andrew well knows from all the inquiries he gets today is we've gone past that. We don't have these huge volumes now and customers are looking for something that does exactly what they want. And when you come back to the financial engineering part of it, then they don't want to pay for a lot of the stuff that's in this, these packages that is not applicable to them. It's one of the challenges we're facing at the moment. The biggest offender, in my mind, is the uh, information technology industry, data processing industry, where they uh, want to get a single package. So they go to a company like uh, Schneider or Eaton and say, uh, okay, we want a UPS that will do this and do that and provide this amount of power. And then, oh, by the way, uh, we need a 15-minute battery backup. And they don't specify the battery. The UPS company, and I've worked for one for four years, major one, they'll supply the package with uh, probably the cheapest possible batteries they can get crammed into the smallest space. And of course, the customer and user doesn't really know what they're getting. All they know is they're getting a 500 kVA UPS. And we've seen several examples of that, including one recently at the National Institute of Health, if you remember, George. Mm -hmm. Batteries were packed in so tightly you couldn't get at them. Anyway. So then, just kind of speaking in general terms, what's next for the industry? What is the direction that you see the industry is going in the next, let's say, 10 years? George, you go first. Where do I see it going in the next 10 years? Well, that's kind of interesting because I think it's actually going to revert back to what I would call a much more modular structure whereby you can pick and place pieces and put them together to do the job. But to me, the most interesting thing was that one of the first things I did when I came to the States in full time in 87 or 88, it was when I was working for Allen in those days and I got involved in designing and building a power system for what was ISDN, which is the first of the data at home type systems. And we were able to transmit the power from the uh, central, from the actual communication system out to the phones by using two wires within the cable. And I was just reading yesterday that there's now a system that's been developed that, that uses exactly the same technique to power the 5G 
So you now power it. So you don't have to put batteries in all these little 5G stations that are on the, the lampposts. You can actually power a number of them remotely, but what they're using is they're actually using 400 volts out over it, but they've got special protection systems to protect people. And it was just fascinating to see how something that I had worked on all these years ago, how it's now been developed over the years in different formats to now being used to power 5G. And that's where I think we're going to see things in less packages, more modular, more choice, because that's what the customers need. The requirements are so varied, you can't simply package it in one package any longer. I agree with that. Uh, Modularity is the way of the future. Even large UPS systems have gone modular. Uh, But the other thing I think we're going to see is one of the big changes is going to be uh, going away from uh, AC-powered data centers to DC-powered data centers. Some high-voltage DCs, 380 volts been mentioned, because it's much more efficient. You only have one stage of conversion. And with the high-voltage DC, you you lose the advantage of AC powering, which is uh, to do with voltage drop. So I think you're going to see some large DC-powered data centers just for the sheer efficiency of it. It's only a single conversion. AC to DC, you don't have to convert the DC back to AC again. So that's hopefully something we'll see in the next several years. I worked for a company, American Power Conversion, one time, and this is uh, 20 odd years ago, and uh, we had a customer who wanted to have a DC data center. And I basically, with a couple of colleagues, we designed one, and they loved the thing until I got a phone call from the uh, vice president of uh, engineering for American Power Conversion to remind me that APC was a UPS company, wasn't a DC power company. And that was the end of that. And hopefully we're going to see that come back within the next, I'd say, five years. So that's just an off-the-wall comment on that question about where do I see the industry going. Okay, yeah, we appreciate that insight. And we'll try and wrap up the segment here. Any final thoughts you want to share over the coming episodes? We will get into more detailed topics, but really just wanted to take a real introductory look at the industry here on the first episode. Is there anything else either one of you would like to share before we move on? One of the uh, things that we had talked about, David, uh, kind of perked my interest in how do we repair the aging infrastructure, uh, electrical distribution infrastructure, which is something close to my heart. And... If I had a short answer for that, it would be spend money. And there's several ways of doing that. But I think we're going to follow the European model. And I think within 10 years, you're going to see micro-nuclear reactors all over the place. Because although I'm all for environmental sustainability, I just don't think these uh, large-scale wind and solar plants are going to do the job that we think they're going to do. And that was one of the problems down in Texas. One of the problems. So maybe George can comment on that quickly and then we can wrap this up. What am I going to say to that one? Yeah, I actually do believe we can definitely use solar and wind because as Alan knows, I've been involved in solar and wind in past lives. But I think that he's probably right. They can get the micronuclear sorted out. That would be a good start. The thing we can never get away from is that we have baseline power required. And the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time. So we can't get away from the fact that we need baseline power in order to keep us 
is going. So that's, as I said earlier, one of the things that you, when you asked me about what kept me going was life's interesting. There's nothing but challenges. And it's going to be interesting to see how many we can get through. Yeah, yeah. Thank you both for your time today. And we look forward to our next episode when we'll, we'll dive into some more topics about the industry. But that was great. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks. So the next segment on the show that we want to feature will be our 10 in 10 section where we'll have an Eagle Eye employee interview a supplier, customer, or partner about a range of topics related to DC Power. And we're going to ask them 10 questions in 10 minutes. And here we go. Today, we have Andrew Charlton, who is our stationary power expert and sales manager, talking with our good friend, Lucas Burnt, who is our definite product expert when it comes to industrial stationary chargers. Andrew, I'll turn it over to you. Lucas, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's nice to be here and certainly uh, talk to you guys. Always a treat. And I'm looking forward to some normal when we can start getting back together in person. Hopefully it's not too far down the road. Absolutely. Totally agree. So purpose of this segment is we're going to try to get you to give our audience 10 powerful questions and answers in 10 minutes. Are you ready? I got you. Yes, I am. So being that it's 2021, I think the question that's on most people's minds is, is your next car going to be gas or electric? I think it is going to be, there's a strong play for electric. And it would be actually not my daily user, it'd be my wife's. Because she does a lot of in-town travel, kids, family, stuff like that. And the amount of charging stations has really, lack of better words, exploded here in the Midwest. So yeah, I think electric. Yeah, and I think as they continue to grow, the big question would then be, are you ready to give your driving responsibilities to an electric vehicle? Ooh, that's a tough one. I've never personally experienced it or tried it, but I'm open to it. I'm certainly open to it. I, would, I think I would give it a try. The only thing is that living in the Midwest, things you have to be mindful of is traveling these roads during a harvest season, you know, equipment's moving around, you got to be kind of careful, <laughs> things like that. So yeah, yeah, I think I'd give it a try, you bet. 100%. Yeah, there's a lot of farm vehicles out there. So keeping your eyes on the road is quite critical. So you mentioned a lot of chargers exploding, a lot of charging sites exploding, even across the Midwest. That leads me to the next question. What would you find that's most interesting about the industrial charging industry in 2021? I think some of the most interesting parts of it, I heard George talk about this a little bit, and he's dead on. What this last year taught us is how heavily reliant we are and need to be on digital communication, the power it takes to do that you can break it down even so far as to the amount of power it takes to operate school systems that are gone all of a sudden 100% remote and what that takes to pull off. Major businesses normally operating in huge buildings with the power inside to support the infrastructure were moved to residential neighborhoods. And by and large, the grid handled it from my small point of view. I'm sure different parts of the country would certainly argue that with me. But by and large, it was pretty well maintained out through the Midwestern regions. Now, there was the hiccups that did happen through the Southern regions, through Texas and Oklahoma and so on. But that also was Mother Nature playing a hand in other things as well. But I think that the industry overall, 
learned a lot. And there's some serious wake up calls this last 18 months. And you talked about learning quite a bit. How will chargers need to adapt to the changing demands in the future? I think the major things are going to be is the redundancy factor, being able to take multiple hits and stay in the fight to continue to lay down that power that is controlling the grid. That is going to continue to need to be the thing because as we learned in the last 18 months, if you turn on the news, which anymore was kind of scary to do, there was always a new event happening, whether it was related to weather, extra pressure on the grid, and they need to be able to handle a lot of abuse, so to speak. But also, the charger has to be adaptive to the people that interact with it. You have two outstanding groups out there. You have the young up-and-comers, love technology, eager to learn. But then you have this core group of people with decades of intellectual capital, messages and experiences to teach and pass on, lessons learned. The charger must be set up for what they're used to and how they're used to running their equipment. So you got to do it both ways. Yeah, when it comes to these up-and-comers who are looking at the world from a different perspective, as well as batteries changing, how is that changing the way that you guys are thinking about chargers? The ways we're thinking about it is ways we can have our charger interact with devices, tablets. But the trick there is it has to be 110% secure, not allowing somebody to get in there to do something malicious or hijack the signal. That's the trick. And we must be secure in what we do to adapt to this technology that's so prevalent. The phone in your pocket, it can do so much good, but also there's there's bad things that come with it. So we need to make sure we're adaptive to those newer technologies, but we do it safely and correctly and securely. And for all those investors out there, What market segments do you see the biggest growth when it comes to chargers and batteries? I think the biggest growth is going to be, you know, you look at the charger that we currently work with today versus the charger we've worked cooperatively together for what seems like just yesterday, but, you know, the last five or six years, it is redundant, but you want to look at a redundant grid and what sometimes is referred to as microgrids, where if one falls due to an unplanned outage, there is no interruption in in service to the customer, the clients, the general public. And so I think you're going to see a lot of the smaller microgrids continue to pop up, to continue to be a, a real force out there, because there's only so many people that work at a utility district to maintain these. It's a finite amount of people. And you have to have more to back them up so they can go and solve issues in a prioritized fashion. Yeah, and you just started to allude to this, but in the scheme of America's full grid system, what role does a charger play in that grid? It is probably, I want to say, in the top two or three important pieces of the grid. Number one is the power coming in. Obviously, you got to have that. But the charger is what is powering the controls. It's essentially the steering wheel on the car and you're running 100 miles an hour down the interstate. You have to have that control. And if you don't have control, then bad things happen really quickly. So the charger is really, it's a huge symbiotic relationship. You have your batteries and your charger, but without the charger, you eventually will lose control. Batteries can hold the line, hold the hold defense, you know, do all that great stuff. But 
the time will expire and the charger will need to be there to boost them up or cover the load once the batteries are depleted. So it has to fill multiple roles. All right, Lucas, two last ones. Hopefully we can interject some fun into this. What is the number one place that me, the average person, would interact or come across one of our charges in my daily life, whether I'm driving or walking? How do I interact with these? Where are they playing in my life? They're playing in a couple places in your life. The substations, keeping the power turned on, charging your iPhones, keeping the fridge cooling, uh, our favorite beverages. That's the, probably the number one place you run across it in life. Absolutely. Before we let you go, do you have any favorite charger stories, interactions with an event, anything like that that you could leave us with today to kind of set home what a charger does and how it's a part of everyone's lives? Yeah, I do have a favorite story. It also surrounds one of the best holidays in our country, and that is the 4th of July. We did an installation, you know, in the dead of winter one year at a substation, so obviously cold. And having a casual conversation with the substation tech who was in charge, the foreman, was very excited, showing pictures of his new boat that he had ordered. And so time goes on. We're excited for him. You know, who wouldn't like a new boat, right? And so here comes the 4th of July, and uh, I think it was July 2nd or 3rd, a couple storms ripped through the area. There were some surges, and he got an alarm about the charger that we had done during the winter. And so he calls me on his way out and says, the new boat's in the driveway. And if I have to change out a charger, I don't get to use it. I'd really like to use my new boat. <laughs> I said, okay, let's see what's going on. Because he's driving. So I said, tell me what your alarms say. And he says, well, we have all the power we need. We have all, everything's covered. Everything's running fine. But we can see we have one IPM out of the eight that has gone down. I said, well, you've got seven left. More than double your capacity is covered. Or uh, need is covered. I'd say you could probably turn around and go hook onto your boat and hit it after the holiday because the charger is fine. It took one hit. You've got seven more to go for IPMs, not to worry. And to hear the stress relief in his voice, because I think he was going to be in trouble with his wife too, if I remember correctly. (laughs) He flipped around, went home, got the boat and had himself a good 4th of July with his family and away he went. So yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah, it's pretty incredible too. It kind of brings home the idea that uh, chargers are never sleeping either. It's 24-7 around the clock, critical power. You know, we all want our fridge to work, our air conditioning to work. And like you said, that's a pivotal role in keeping everything flowing. So the fact that the charger has those capabilities is pretty exceptional. And hopefully we'll have you back on so you can talk more details about how that charger operates and what it does for the grid. Oh yeah, I'd love to. This is a great Always good to to work with you guys, chat with you guys. Absolutely. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to the DC Power Hour. We hope you learned a little bit about the state of the industry and how having the right charger can help you effectively overcome outages for mission-critical applications. For more information on chargers or other critical power solutions, visit our website at eepowersolutions.com. So check us out next time, and we'll dive into the world of battery maintenance, battery warranties, and battery monitoring. George and Alan might even share some of their most prolific horror stories about the battery maintenance, or lack thereof, gone wrong. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.